Good afternoon to all of you. Good morning. I will comment briefly here uh, that many in South Africa have sent their love and affection to you. They don't know you, but they love you, and many have assured me that they do pray for you regularly. Uh, I've told them about you, so they know you. They need your uh, that you need their prayers. That's that's a joke. But uh, I tell you, I'm torn when I leave here to go there, and then I'm torn when I leave there to come here. Uh, there are a lot of warm, friendly, serving, kindly people in that group, and uh, I'll be thankful when we are all together under one roof, so to speak, and and God puts us together. As John indicated, the group is growing in numbers. Uh, we took attendance, I guess, the second day of the feast and had 72. The first year there were about 25. Uh, last year, around 40. And it almost doubled this year. So they're growing in numbers, and in my opinion, spiritually as well. And uh, from what I've observed there and heard from here, I believe and hope we're making progress toward God being pleased with the way we're keeping his feasts. Maybe he will quit calling it your feast one of these days and call it his feast that we're keeping. It is interesting to watch what is happening there. Uh, we suddenly, in terms of numbers, are major players in South Africa. Uh, you combine all the other feast sites of, of Global Living, uh, United, and so on, and you might come up with 400 countable people, including our feast, in South Africa now. There were at one time about 3,000 people in South Africa alone in Worldwide Church of God. So now if you start counting those who are visible, if you come up with 400, you're probably on the positive side, or 400 may be a high number, in other words. So the devastation there has been pretty powerful. And we're getting down to about 10% countable that are left. Maybe 15 or 20%, I don't know. Maybe there are others out there who are obeying, uh, who are not able to be counted because they're not part of a particular group. Even as Elijah said, I'm the only one, Lord. And he said, no, there are 7,000 that he couldn't count. So who knows? But based on what's there, suddenly we are growing, and everyone else, as far as I know, is actually shrinking. And part of the shrink is due to them coming to us. Uh, and we have no one there, as John said, to really take care of them on a week-to-week and month-to-month basis. I don't know for sure what God is doing there, but he's doing something. And I hope that you will pray about that, that God will give us clear understanding of how we should react and what we should do. It's not that we're over there trying to proselyte. In fact, I did very much talk to those people even before the feast in East London and in Johannesburg who were thinking of breaking off from the affiliation they were then with uh, and told them if you possibly can get along go ahead and stay in that other organization and use our tapes as dietary supplement and you can that way have more fellowship you can hear their sermons as well as, as have ours but the local ministry in both cases in East London and in Johannesburg has made them increasingly uncomfortable and they cannot worship God in peace. So therefore, East London uh, gave notice just before they left for the feast that they would not be back to that organization 
and began their own uh, CGG fellowship last weekend. And the group in Johannesburg went back, as John said, to a very, very cold shoulder, in fact, somewhat heated uh, discussions. And now they have decided to begin a congregation this very weekend. So where it's going, I don't know, but God seems to be moving there to do something. And we'll keep our eyes on it, and I hope you will, and as I said, pray earnestly about it because we're scratching our heads. Why is this happening in Africa? Why isn't it happening in Australia or the Philippines or the United Kingdom or somewhere else or a slow growth here and there where suddenly it's just mushrooming in that one spot? What they essentially were made to do was make a choice between receiving our tapes or fellowshipping with people that they had been with for 20 and 30 years. And thankfully in one way they feel that they're getting enough from the tapes that we're sending that they would rather go it solo in that sense than stay with a, a larger organization where they do not feel they're getting the sustenance they need so that's the way it is anyway I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to get through the whole book of Habakkuk today if it is at all possible and I think we can to begin with, Habakkuk is a very important message to us right now. And interestingly, the man himself was obscure. Uh, Habakkuk is any man, just like you and me. He was the average Joe, apparently. Very little is known of him. In the commentaries, uh, it's almost blank. And I think that's interesting, based on where we are today, there is an important message to be delivered, but no one is important today, it seems. Important in the sense of uh, being a visible leader or whatever. So the message is what is important here, and I think God used an obscure man on purpose to deliver this message and we'll see that as we go along or by the time we finish his name means embrace or embracer now that may seem strange when we first get into the book considering his questions and his attitudes but by the end of the book we shall see that his name fits quite nicely embrace or embracer Richard gave a sermon on Habakkuk I think it's been a couple of years ago now so I'm not going to go into a lot of the detail. I'm going to take a different angle at this book than he did. Uh, he was right and gave a very fine sermon on it. But I want to meld it into the context of the Minor Prophets and show how it fits into the flow of the Minor Prophets story. Because the Minor Prophets is not unrelated books. It is a story, chapter by chapter, where God is leading us to some conclusions and some understandings and what we need to be doing. And Habakkuk fits beautifully where it is. Historically, the man wrote within 25 years of Israel's fall, apparently. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, were on their way to destroy Jerusalem. Now it does appear from the minor and the major prophets and we've already seen this, that Edom, Assyria, 
and Babylon were among the major conspirators against Israel at the end. The book of Obadiah fingers our brother Edom from Esau. Nahum fingers the Assyrian. And now Habakkuk will talk about the Chaldeans coming to destroy Babylonia, Babylon historically being its capital, of course. Now, where are these peoples today? Well, Edom is scattered in and around our nations of Jacob, seeking the return of the birthright by destroying us. That is their avowed purpose in life, to get the birthright back. Whether they know that as individuals today, or as a people, or even who they are, I do not know, but they are reacting that way because God said that's the way it always would be between Jacob and Esau. And the book of Obadiah laid that out very clearly, if you remember. Assyria is essentially Germany seeking, as the non-greedy farmer said, only the land which joins them. Think about that one. If Ernest Martin's paper from the 1960s is correct, a race change occurred in Italy, the Chaldeans replacing the original inhabitants. Hence the Catholic-Protestant Babylonian mystery system, which has so bedeviled the world centered in Rome. So we have a threefold threat that has been defined here in the Minor Prophets as we've gone through. First of all is family, in Obadiah, and secondarily is military, primarily, through the Assyrian, whoever that will represent in the end time, and however this beast forms. And thirdly, a religious persecution from the Babylonian mystery system. Now, in this particular book of Habakkuk, it also shows military power, not just religious persecution per se. But if you look at the history of the Catholic Church, uh, and at the Middle Ages, they used both religious persecution and they administered it militarily. So when the beast and the false prophet get together and the Edomites sprinkle in there to help provide the glue and the push, it's going to be both religious and military. At the outset of this book, Habakkuk sees internal problems in Israel and feels frustrated. The weight of the impending destruction for Israel's sins on his mind and is much like us today. Let's get into the first few verses here. The burden, the heaviness, which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Does this already begin to sound like you and me? How long, O Lord, are we going to go through what we're going through? Even cry out to you of violence, and you will not save. A world getting more and more dangerous around us. A church more and more dangerous around us. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are those that raise up strife and contention, disunity, disharmony, fighting, warring, doctrinal problems in terms of the church per se. Therefore the law is slacked, that is, powerless, carries no meaning to people anymore, and judgment does never go forth. It seems like we get wrong decisions, we're treated wrongly, 
and people are frustrated and stymied by the government that they're under in the church. For the wicked does compass about the righteous. It seems like we have wicked all around us. And Habakkuk was looking upon himself as being righteous and those around him being wicked. Are these some of the feelings that you and I might have had? Therefore, wrong judgment proceeds. So this was a very, very frustrated man. And he's showing his frustration to God, I think. It's, it's a plea. And yet at the same time, I think we'll see before we're done here, there was an attitude in the man's mind as well. But he didn't think God was treating him and Israel very fairly. He had not been commissioned to preach repentance to the Chaldeans or the Babylonians as Jonah had been to the Assyrians. And Jonah, of course, course, loathed the idea. But Habakkuk was frustrated by what was happening and about to happen, and he began to take God to task for it. How long are you going to leave us in this condition? I know we've all felt that same sense of frustration with this scattering that's happening in the church. But this book fits perfectly in the context of the Minor Prophets. We have now witnessed much of the destruction of spiritual Israel, as I just recounted to you in South Africa. The same I found out when I talked to people in Miami and in Chicago and various other places where there were three or four thousand. Now it's down to three or four or five hundred. It can be counted. We see all the signs of the destruction of physical Israel accumulating around us. So not only the destruction of the church, but we're feeling the pressure of knowing that our nation is going to be invaded, betrayed, and destroyed, taken into captivity very shortly now. So we have all kinds of questions and fears, don't we? All kinds of concerns. Just the same situation Habakkuk found himself in. Now in past sermons in this series on the Minor Prophets, we've examined the problems of Israel with emphasis on spiritual Israel, the church, in Hosea, Joel, and Amos. I am not taking this narrow focus without understanding what I'm doing. We could be focusing more on the sins of the nation around us and how God is going to destroy all Israel physically, but we're not speaking to all Israel physically. Our audience is the church, and therefore the focus is on how this affects the church, you and me. We have seen our enemies defined in Obadiah and Nahum, with Jonah thrown in between, lest anyone run in cowardice from the enemies we face or the commissions given to us, or fail to follow God's instructions implicitly in the face of duties unpleasant to us. God says no matter what happens, Jonah, you are going to deliver this message, like it or not. And Jonah rebelled and decided he'd go to Spain or somewhere. We cannot do that. We have to move forward. Then after Jonah, Micah tells us we must face the enemy and thresh the enemy. That there's going to be a major confrontation between the church and the world. And we cannot run. Now with all this warning and trial, trouble and tribulation, this scattering, is it any wonder we often contemplate 
How long, O oh Lord? How long do we have to live under these pressures? This pressure that the ministry is putting on us to grow, to overcome, to become holy and righteous. It's hard to do. It's hard to keep our nose to the grindstone. Now through this book, keep in mind that Habakkuk is not an isolated book without an important place in the story flow of these prophecies. We have already seen that the flow of these books applies directly to today. But what we are seeing here is what is currently happening in the church and is very shortly going to be happening in the nation. Therefore, therefore, when Habakkuk asks how long, it must be understood as a prophecy, not as the anguish of a particular man thousands of years ago, or thousands of years ago, worrying about the Babylonians coming into the land. It is the pertinent question to pause and ask right now before moving on to the succeeding books in the Minor Prophets. We've already been through a lot, brethren. So, God in one way gives us a pause here to ask some rhetorical questions and really some realistic questions. How long? So we are much as Habakkuk. We've heard about all this heard all this preaching about sin and repentance so how long do we have to wait now let's view the frustration felt by Habakkuk through the eyes of some others in the Bible and our own since all those who asked these questions were inspired to do so for why for our benefit upon whom the ends of the worlds have come let's go to Psalm 74 <laughs> understanding now that David is a prophet and the book of Psalms is a very prophetic book so what David wrote God had recorded for us he didn't record it for himself he gave those prayers to God just as you and I do prayers and they go to God and to no one else but God caused David to write his prayers down in some cases so that we could derive the benefit Psalm 74. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever, seemingly? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the rod of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion, this church, where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy has done wickedly in the sanctuary. With what has happened in Pasadena, in the sanctuary, in the temple of God, which was dedicated to the great God, and which has been desecrated by man. Your enemies roar in the midst of your congregations. They set up their ensigns for signs. They look to themselves, in other words. A man was famous according as he had lifted up axes upon the thick trees. Trees are another analogy for churches, just like branches and houses and temples and so on we'll see that more and more in these prophecies but now they break down the carved work thereof at once with axes and hammers totally destroying that which God has built they've cast fire into your sanctuary they've defiled by casting down the dwelling place of your name to the ground 
They said in their hearts, let us destroy them together. They burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. How many, how many congregations are left of worldwide? And how big are they? It's like you burn them with fire and 90% has been destroyed. We see not our signs. <laughs> there is no more any prophet. Neither is there among us any that knows how long. O oh God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O oh Lord, and that the foolish people have blasphemed your name. O oh, deliver not the soul of your turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. Forget not the congregation of your poor forever. Verse 22, Arise, O oh God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. So David pleads to God to remember his own name and what is happening to his beloved church. Now let's go to Psalm 79. Page, uh, Psalm 79. O oh God, the heathen are come into your inheritance. Your holy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem, the church, in heaps, on heaps. The dead bodies of your servants have they given to be meat to the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Speaking metaphorically, people are dying of pestilence, disease, famine, and wild beasts, spiritually speaking. We become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are around about us. I, I have a... The, the problem with explaining who we are is becoming worse and worse. I recently told some people who asked what church I was with. They asked me what I do. I said, I'm a minister. Oh, what church? Worldwide. Oh, that's wonderful. They've gone evangelical. <laughs> so now I've got a counter by saying, we keep the traditional ways. And then their face falls. I told someone recently who didn't know it that worldwide had gone evangelical. And they just lit up. So they are becoming popular with the world, while we are becoming less and less popular. Verse 5, How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Shall your jealousy burn like a fire? I mean, the, the world has turned against us. <coughs> are you against us too? How long will you do this to us? Verse 9, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name, and deliver us and purge away our sins for your name's sake. Verse 13, So we, your people, and sheep of your pasture, will give thanks forever. We shall will show forth your praise to all generations. Let's take Psalm 80. It's handy here. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, that you that lead Joseph like a flock, you that dwell between the cherubims, shine forth when we sing. Verse 4, O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? I can show you scriptures which say that God is angry and that many of the prayers of his people going up today, he despises. Verse 12, Why have you then broken down her hedges so they, that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? This reminds me of Isaiah 5 where he says the spiritual houses were torn down. He's taken the hedge away from his vineyard and allowed it to be destroyed. Verse 14, Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine. 
in the vineyard which your right hand has planted, in the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. So will not we go back from you, quicken us, and we will call upon your name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. So again, David continues to plead. Chapter 90, I'll take one more here. I want to pick this up in verse 10. Chapter 90, verse 10. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. It is interesting that he uses a seventy-year captivity <laughs> with Israel in Babylon, and he speaks prophetically, I think, of a seventy-year captivity of the church in modern Babylon today, which we should be getting near the end of, if I reckon correctly. Verse 18, So will not we go back from you, quicken us, and we will call upon your name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. The same thing he said back in the other chapter, 80, I think. Oh, wait, no, I'm reading it, 80. I skipped down here. Excuse me. Verse 11, Who knows the power of your anger? Even according to your fear, so is your wrath. How do you and I know how angry God is? with what has happened to our attitudes in the church. Well, we can tell pretty well by what's happening to the church. He is not a happy God. Verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Verse 14, O satisfy us early with your mercy. Isn't this the feeling that we have? How long and when are you going to show mercy on us and when are you going to regather us? Verse 16, let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish you the work of our hands upon us. Yes, the works of our hands establish you it. This is our prayer. This is our plea. This is our hope. This is what we desire of God. So many of our feelings are reflected right here in David's writings. Just like Habakkuk's. How long, O Lord, he said. Now, how does God answer the question? This is interesting. He answers it somewhat obliquely, but in no uncertain terms. Let's go back to the book of Habakkuk. You might put your little ribbon or a marker there. We'll be back and forth here all day. That's not implying the sermon will be four hours, but we'll be here a lot. Verse 5 of chapter 1. <clears throat> Behold, you among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. Habakkuk is telling us, brethren, today that God is going to do a wonderful work, both spiritually, as we shall see, and physically in our nation of Israel, our nations of Israel. He is going to do a work that is going to be so incredible that we won't believe it even though we are told ahead of time. And this is not a positive work in terms of its effect upon 
us. It will turn out positive in the long run. But in the meantime, it's not what Habakkuk wanted to hear, and it's not what you and I want to hear, brethren. We are in the throes of this destruction, and here is the message God is giving us. And I think this bleeds over not just spiritually speaking, but he's talking about the physical captivity about to come on us, and that much of the church, if not most of the church, is going right on into that physical captivity along with the rest of the nation. And here is God's answer to Habakkuk's plea, with somewhat of a bad attitude joined to it, of how long, O Lord. Verse 6, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. The book of Daniel talks about the different empires that have ruled on earth, and I believe that they are all going to be involved in this because it is a worldwide conspiracy that is going to occur against Israel. <clears throat> That's why they're included in the book of Daniel, which is very obviously an end-time prophecy culminating in the end of the 1,335 days with the return of Christ. And the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, are very much in there, even in chapter 11, the ships of Chittim or uh, Chaldea or Rome are involved. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. They're proud, they're haughty, they have their dignity about them. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle at haste to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup as the east wind. And they shall gather the captivity as the sand. Israel is going into captivity. They shall scoff at the kings and the princes shall be a scorn to them. So our leaders will mean nothing to them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. And there is a tie-in to Daniel 11 here, verse 38, and that whole context in Daniel 11 about coming against the church as well as against the physical nation of Israel, and he does talk about God's holy people there. So the church is very, very much involved in this, and the language being the same in Daniel 11 as it is here in Habakkuk 1. So, Habakkuk asks, How long? And God says, I'm going to send total destruction. Now, Habakkuk asks a second question, beginning in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? And it should be translated then, You shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them for judgment, and Almighty God, you have established them for correction. He asks a second question with a yeah but attitude. Aren't you the God who lives forever? These Chaldeans were ordained for judgment and correction. <laughs> they aren't righteous. They aren't God's people. Notice what he says a little later about them. Verse 13, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. How can you look on these Chaldeans and use them as an instrument against us? 
Wherefore look you upon them that deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours the man that is more righteous than he? Question mark. Oh Lord, we are more righteous than these Chaldeans. Why are you using them against us when we're purer than they are? Why isn't your anger kindled against them? We are the church of God, we might say. Why are you destroying us? Why are you letting the heathen who departed from your covenant destroy the church? Why are you letting soon the nations of this world destroy your people Israel? We're better than they are. Do you detect a little bit of an attitude here in Habakkuk? And you make men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Surely they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations. Assyria and Babylon have been known throughout history for destroying the nations, trying to dominate the world. And here he's talking about the destruction of Israel. Why do you make us as Israelites, as church members, like the fish of the sea that are taken in nets? We're helpless. We can't do anything. Where are you, O Lord, is implied here. We're better than they are. Why? I think that we sometimes have a certain amount of this self-righteousness in ourselves as well. We're your people. Well, we are. But we certainly should not have a pride and a vanity about it. Instead of saying, instead of questioning God, in other words, why are you doing this to us? We need to ask a different question. Any time we esteem ourselves better spiritually than any other human being, we're in trouble. How do we know that other person's spiritual standing with God? How, much, how do we know how much is required of that person? How do we know how much has been given to that person? We can only look at what we've been given and try to do the best we can without pointing fingers at others. This is a major problem that is extant in the church today. Spiritual vanity and pride. Read Revelation 3 about the latest sins if you don't believe it. Pointing the finger at other people. Whereas we need to not be comparing ourselves among ourselves, it is not spiritually wise to do so on a church-wide or an individual basis by the lady sitting next to us or the gentleman in the third row behind us, whom we might esteem to be spiritually lower than we are. That was at the crux of Habakkuk's attitude here. Maybe. After what we've already gone through, we're still possibly a little self-righteous. Maybe we shouldn't take the attitude, haven't we done enough by now? Haven't we overcome enough by now? Aren't we yet okay? We're certainly better than those around us. 
we might say. Maybe we're not. Maybe God is giving us some insight here in this book of Habakkuk that we still have too much spiritual pride. Now let's go to chapter 2 here. Chapter 2. By this time, Habakkuk has vented his frustrations. He's taken God to task. He's realized probably that his attitude is not quite right because look what he says next. Chapter 2. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say to me. Oops, have I stuck my foot in it here? And what I shall answer when I am reproved. In other words, he knew he had it coming. He had overstepped the bounds. He had pushed God. He had been self-righteous. And he was expecting a reaction here from God. I think it's okay for us to wonder how long... Because our prayer is to be a sigh and cry for the abominations that we see around us and in us. But it can't have that attitude with it. Why, God, are you doing this to us when we are okay? Now let's look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that reads it. So instead of reproving Habakkuk immediately, he gives him a commission instead. <laughs> Sometimes that's a punishment. You know, the teacher says, well, you know, you use that word, uh, write it a hundred times in a sentence. So he gave him the commission here. He did not remove the vision from Habakkuk. He said, write it down, and whoever reads this had better run. The word might be, I think as Richard brought out, pant here. Run until you are breathless. Don't sit. Don't stand still. Don't walk. Run. This is the gun lap. That's a bad word in some circles. But God tells us, when we come to this point where destruction is occurring around us, the Babylonian spiritually, the Assyrian spiritually, and the Edomite spiritually is wrecking the church, it's time to begin to really run. It's tennis shoe time here. It's not sandal time. And this is written to us. And our nation should be doing the same thing on a physical level, turning to God, but they're not. We're the only ones that have a chance, really. Remember, the whole context of the minor prophets is the very end of the age, the setting of the day of the Lord. Go back to Joel. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And Peter was not a bit bashful, thinking that Christ was going to return very shortly within his lifetime when he saw signs and wonders begin to happen there in Acts 2, he was not a bit bashful to apply those to the New Testament church, not to ancient Israel. He said, this is what was written by the prophet Joel. <coughs> Paul was not a bit abashed in Hebrews and other places of applying these scriptures to the early New Testament church, which he thought would culminate very shortly in the return of Christ. 
He used a direct quote from Habakkuk, which we'll see a little later on, and applied it to the New Testament church. So for us to apply it when we know we are at the end is not far-fetched at all. This is talking about now. And now is when Peter and Paul thought they were in. They later found out that, no, this was for a couple thousand more years. But their understanding of these prophecies was such that they thought, if this is the end time, this means us. Okay? It is the end time now. And I'm saying, it means us. So, this is a very urgent message that God tells Habakkuk to write down. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end, at the end of the message, it will not lie. And you will see what the end of this message is, as well as at the end of the age. It shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now it may seem like us to us at this point that it's forever. This thing is never going to end. It just goes on and on and on. And yet God is, in a sense, doing a backflash here of answering Habakkuk's original question because he saw that Habakkuk was backing off and pondering his response and wondering what God would say. In other words, he was getting his attitude straightened out, and therefore God said, it's a short while. When the conditions prevail that we saw in the latter part of chapter 1, when we see the destruction around us, know that it is not long, that it will not tarry. Even though it seems like it to us, it will not tarry. So, in other words, the message is, wait, don't give up, it's very close. Verse 4, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. This is what Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, quoted. Chapters 10 through 12. The just shall live by faith, and God chastens every son whom he loves. This was applied to the New Testament church. Now there's a distinction in attitudes here. Notice this. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright. The prideful, uh, critical, comparative Christian who compares his righteousness to that of others is not upright. The plumb line makes him a liar. God says, the just shall live by faith, that is, humility, trusting God, waiting for God, not being proud. The humble live by faith. Those who are getting it. But woe to those who still have the pride of this life in them. And God only talks about the humble once. He says they're doing okay. But the prideful, he goes on to describe. Yea, also, because he, verse 5, transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, neither keeps at home, who enlarges his desire as hell, and it has death and cannot be satisfied, but gathers unto him all nations and heaps unto him all people. 
There are those in this world physically who want to rule the world. What they have is not enough. They're not thankful. There are those who want to rule the whole church. What God has given them is not enough. They're not thankful. The knowledge we have is not enough. We have to have intellectual vanity and pride and think that we have all the answers sometimes. There are all kinds of pride. Lifting ourselves up proudly against our neighbor. Shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increases that which is not his. Greedy, materialistic, in other words. How long? Question mark. And to him that lays himself with thick clay. I guess spreads clay all over and saying this doesn't apply to me. It won't penetrate my, my clay here. But this is interesting to me that this book started by Habakkuk asking the question, How long? Now God asked the question, How long? How long will you remain prideful? How long will you compare yourselves among yourselves? How long will you be spiritually proud and not be meek and humble and loving toward each other? Now, if it is fair for Habakkuk or us to ask God how long, is it not fair for him to ask us the same question? Let's examine that. Proverbs 1, verse 22. Proverbs 1. Verse 22, How long, you naive ones, the New King James has as a footnote. Not simple, because we don't think of ourselves as simple. We have IQs well over 90, we feel. How long, you naive ones, will you love naivete? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. <laughs> Turn you at my reproof. Turn around, God says. Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make known my words to you. There are a lot of people who don't know the meaning of God's words today. They read all these prophecies back here and have not a clue what they're talking about. Because we are not willing to turn it around. Because I have called and you refuse. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. They're not paying any attention to what God wants done. They're trying to do what they think needs done. But you have said it not all my counsel, all my words, and with none of my reproof. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. When your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come on you, verse 29, for they that hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Verse 32, for the turning away of the naive shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. We still have too much of our minds and our hearts and the material things and the gods of this world. But whoso hearkens to me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. God is going to bring peace to the church. We'll get to that eventually in this series. Proverbs 6, verse 9. How long will you sleep, O sluggard? Well, God can ask how long too. What is wrong with the end time church? Revelation 3. Or in Matthew 25. Asleep spiritually. Unaware spiritually. Can't see or hear. How long will you sleep, sluggard, spiritually? When will you rise out of your sleep? 
get a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. I don't really want to wake up. There are a lot of people in this situation today. So, so shall your poverty, and let's apply this spiritual poverty, shall come as one that travels, and your want as an armed man. <coughs> people who travel a lot, like a rolling stone, certainly gather no moss, and they roll around spiritually and gather no spiritual moss, and your want is an armed man. In other words, then you'll say, I was robbed. What happened? Spiritually speaking, when all these things come down. Mark 13, verse 33. I won't turn back to this one. I'll read parts of it to you. Take you heed, verse 33 of Mark 13. <laughs> Watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. Verse 36, let's skip down. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say unto all, watch. Don't be asleep. This thing is near. We don't know how close, but it's near. I wonder if I'm going to get through this. I thought I could, but I'm not sure now that I can, considering the time of the clock. Well, let's continue on. Let's go to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, beginning in verse 1. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, a city where David dwelt. Ariel is another name or code word for Jerusalem or the church. Verse 5. Moreover, the multitude of your strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passes away. Yea, it shall be at an instant suddenly. Destruction is coming fast. Verse 10, For the Lord has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, speaking to Jerusalem, the church, the prophets and your rulers, the seers he has covered. And the vision of all has become to you as the words of a book that is sealed. In other words, I just don't understand. How many times have people repeated that phrase in the church today? I just don't understand why all this is happening. I can't understand what God is doing. Well, they ought to read the book. It's all in here. So they gave it to the man who was learned. And he said, I can't understand it. It's all sealed up. The book's delivered to him that is not learned in verse 12. And he said, I'm not learned. <laughs> verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people. We've already read that in Habakkuk 1.5. A marvelous work in the church. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. You look at the leaders of worldwide today, and how much understanding is left. Look at... Those who have split off, how much understanding is left. God is doing a marvelous work. Verse 17, It is not yet a very little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. So this turnaround is going to be very quick now. It's not very far off. Once this destruction has come, and the leaders and the people don't know what's coming, don't know what's happening, both the learned and the unlearned. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Same language as Revelation 3.18, anoint your eyes with eye salve. 
and God chastens as many as he loves. So it's a message here in Isaiah about the end time church quoted by Christ in Revelation through John. Jeremiah 31.22 God continues to ask the question How long will you go about O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth a woman shall compass a man. The church is going to begin to look for a man to lead them finally. All seven of the churches are the remnant of them. Hosea 5, 8, verse 5 through 8. Your calf, O Samaria, Israel, the, the, the capital of Israel, has cast you off. Your idols aren't doing you any good, in other words. My anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? How long until we have the attitude of a little child, meek, humble, ready to listen, ready to be taught instead of ready to teach? ready to esteem others better than ourselves rather than saying that person is spiritually less than I. How long will we continue to be our own idol and think that we as individuals are spiritually okay? God asks the question, How long, Israel, will you continue to be like this? Only the humble and the meek will God allow to be in the latter temple. Jeremiah 4, verse 14. Jeremiah 4, 14. All Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you must may be saved. How long shall your vain thoughts lodge within you? Your prideful thoughts. You want to know how long? Until we get humble. That's how long. And most won't. Verse 17. <laughs> Keepers of the field are they against her round about because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. Your way and your doings have procured these things to you. You're reaping what you sowed. <laughs> and you're lackadaisical, emotionless, hum-ho, half-hearted spiritual conditions. That's where we are still. Verse 21, How long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children. And they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. Verse 27, For thus has the Lord said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. <laughs> For this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken it, I have purposed it, and will not repent, neither will I turn back from it. So what God is doing is answering Habakkuk's question, how long? And what must happen? Verse 30, And when you are spoiled, what will you do? Is God's question. Now let's go back to Habakkuk 2 and verse 6. Shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increases that which is not his. How long? How long before we repent? What will we, be, what will we do when this message is delivered to us? Quickly, Revelation 2, 5. You don't need to turn back to these. You don't have time. 
Remember, therefore, from whence you are fallen, the attitude you had back when there was true spirituality in Worldwide Church of God. And repent and do the first works. Revelation 2.16, repent, or I will come to you quickly. Here's some how longs for you. Revelation 3.11, <laughs> behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have. People are trying to wrest it away from us. Don't let it happen. Revelation 22.7 Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now Habakkuk 2, verses 7 through 20, God goes ahead and gives his assessment of where the church yet is. The greater church of God. And it is not a pretty picture. Verse 7, Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite you, and awake that shall vex you, and you shall be for booty to them? Because you have spoiled many nations, all of them of the people shall spoil you. Verse 9, Woe to him that covets an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. We think that we can get enough money in our IRA or... 401k or whatever and will be protected <clears throat> God says materiality won't help verse 13 behold is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire and the people shall weary themselves for very pride and vanity in vain all this that we are doing is going to be taken away and we're going to see that very clearly illustrated to us when we get a couple of books further along in the series here for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him that gives his neighbor drink, that puts the bottle to him, and makes him drunk also, that they may look on their own nakedness. We're okay. Let's have another drink. Let's not get serious here. Let's have a drink. For you are filled with shame for glory. Drink you also, and let your foreskin be uncovered. Drunks get where they lose their, their sense of dignity and modesty. So he says, let your foreskin be uncovered. What is the foreskin or the circumcision a symbol of? The covenant with God. Look at your real spiritual condition. Look down at what is supposed to be a symbol of the covenant with God and how much are you keeping that symbol. Oh yeah, the evidence is there. I was baptized. I was supposedly circumcised of the heart. But what is my real attitude? How much of this world still clings to you and me? Verse 18, what profit the graven what profits the graven image that the maker thereof is graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusts therein to make dumb idols. We make idols of ourselves, we make idols of organizations, we make idols of all kinds of things. Woe to him that says to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Anything other than God. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Here's someone really worthy of worship. Listen to the words of God and keep silence. Here's a little lesson for Habakkuk too who was whining and complaining and carrying on and wondering how long and why are you doing this to us when we deserve better? Why don't you whoop up on those other guys? This silence is Habakkuk. 
It silences Daryl. It silences you. Because we don't have anything to say before God. This scared Habakkuk. He started a prayer in verse chapter 3, verse 2, after hearing this that God told him. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shigionoth, or in poetry. O Lord, I have heard your speech, and I was afraid. O Lord, revive your work, or pre- preserve alive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known, in wrath, remember mercy. In other words, the work of God, the church today, along with Israel, is about to be destroyed. So Habakkuk says, preserve it alive, revive it, and don't let it be destroyed. Be merciful, God. This is his prayer. How far must this go? For sake of time, I won't go back and read these, but in Jeremiah 15, 8 through 11, it talks about the remnant. It, that it will, when this is all done, verse 10, Woe is me, my mother, that you've borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole world, uh, and so on. She that has borne seven languishes, revelate, I mean, uh, verse 9, she's given up the ghost. The church is virtually dead. He says, Very, Verily it shall be well with your remnant, in verse 11. Isaiah 6, I'll read this one to you. Isaiah 6, 11 through 13. Then said I, Isaiah speaking here, Lord, how long? Isaiah had the same question, maybe not the same attitude at this point. And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitants, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Are we not in the midst of a great spiritual forsaking today? But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten. Just wait till we get to the book of Haggai. As a teal tree, and as an oak, here again, churches referred to as trees, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. You wonder how long? Until the church is only ten percent. Isaiah 10, 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. Verse 25 of Isaiah 10. For yet a very little while, and the, indig- and the indignation shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. So when the church gets down to where God sees, there are only about 10% left who are faithful. That's when it turns around. He will work with the remnant. This is how far it goes. Habakkuk will make one more comment on the destruction before he is finished here at the end of chapter 3. Revelation 6, verse 10. Revelation 6, 10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Here is again a question. How long? And white, white robes were given to every one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season, remain in their graves, until, key word, until their fellow servants also and their brethren, that they should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Here's another question or another answer to how long until some of us die 
just as those who went before us died. That's how long. Now, verses 3 through 16 of Habakkuk 3 is Habakkuk's prayer, or the rest of his prayer. <clears throat> With these prospects in mind, and this kind of destruction that God has described here in Habakkuk, and we've read about in other scriptures, in fear and awe, Habakkuk begins to sing the praise of God. He begins to embrace God here. He gets over his peaked attitude and begins to embrace the eternal God in heaven, to be silent before him and to pray wholeheartedly to him to have mercy and to preserve his work alive in the last days. And he goes, I'm not going to read this all for sake of time, but it is a prayer that recounts some of the wonderful things that God did, causing the Jordan to stop the Red Sea to part. I don't know whether he uses that one particularly, but measuring the mountains. And, and he, he, in his prayer, he reminds God and reminds himself in the prayer of what God has done. He became thankful. He became grateful, in other words. Instead of saying, how long with a bad attitude, and why don't you do this to somebody else instead of us, he realizes that God is righteous. God has pointed out his sins, your sins, my sins, that we still have too much pride and vanity, that we're spiritually not yet what we ought to be. So the man began to repent. Now let's wind this up. Verse 16, When I heard my belly trembled, my lips quivered at your voice, or at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. So here we are, the day of trouble, the day of the Lord, the end time. When he comes up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Now, this can be applied, I think, physically, because we're getting to the point where the spiritual and the physical destruction are combined in these messages. But then he talks specifically in verse 17 to the church to the attitudes although the fig tree shall not blossom he, is, he has cons consigned himself to the idea that destruction is going to continue although the fig tree shall not blossom neither shall fruit be in the vine the labor of the olive shall fail and the field shall yield no meat the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. All these are analogies about the church. God says, and Habakkuk realized finally, and we must realize, the church is not going to have success as a whole doing what it is trying to do today. Not only will they not succeed in accomplishing a great work, but even that which they have will be taken away until there is no flock in the fold and there no herd in the stalls. The church is going to come apart. The greater church of God is going to be destroyed, including the houses, the flocks, the herds, the trees, the vines, the big trees. It's all coming down, brethren. It already has to a great degree, but it is not done yet. 
So no matter what man thinks and what vanity he might stand up in and ignore the words of God and say, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to do a great work, it ain't going to happen. Do we understand that finally? Habakkuk finally got the picture. Though the church as a whole will be reduced to a remnant, we as individuals can and will survive and flourish, leaping as a deer on the hills and the high mountains, if we live in faith and humility, embracing God through all his trying times. And that's what he says. Verse 17, although all this is coming down, although the destruction is coming, and Ezekiel 34 says that the flocks will be taken from the shepherds. There are many, many scriptures that tie into this. That's where we are. Although this is going to happen, he says, although being a key word. We got another key word in verse 18. Although this is going to happen, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I'll wake up. I'll be thankful. I will embrace God in the joy of his salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. In other words, God lays the individual responsibility right on my back and your back. Although the church is going to go into destruction, it is up to the individual to turn to God with all his heart. Habakkuk realized Israel would fall, and he had to survive in his own relationship with God. So whether it apply to Israel as a whole, or to the church specifically, which I think this does, God lays the burden on you and me. I'm going to wipe the flocks out. But you can survive if you will embrace the eternal your God. This is a powerful thought with which to conclude the message of Habakkuk. And to leave us to look forward to Zephaniah to see what the next chapter reveals in the story of right now and the future. End of transmission.